take a look at 1 John 3.19, we came across the word heart, and it became apparent we needed to take a look at what that represents, so as to better understand what it means when John says, we shall assure our heart before him. So 1 John 3.19 says, we shall know by this that we are of the truth, and shall assure our heart before him. And when we studied that passage in an exegetical format, we came to the understanding that it we gain experiential knowledge when we are in fellowship with God that we are offering from the source of absolute truth. We correlate absolute truth as divine thought process, the thought process of God himself. He knows all things. What he says is truth. He cannot command us to do something that is not right. He cannot relate to us faulty information because it's against his character. And so when we looked at verse 19, we said that we come to experiential knowledge that we are offering out of the source of absolute truth, God's thought process, divine viewpoint, when we are in fellowship, and that while we operate in divine, from divine thought process, we assure our heart before him. The phrase before him means in his presence. The idea is while we are in a relationship with God that's in harmony, we are following him, he is leading us, we are responding to his initiation, that he and us work together. And so we are metaphysically in his presence, if you will. We're not literally face to face as we would be when we died from this physical life. The assuring our heart before him in the New American Standard, the Greek word for assure, assure is pisomen, and it means to persuade or to convince. The idea is that the heart, which is the thing being persuaded here or convinced, is given information that is designed to program it into doing something other than what it was already doing. So what we learn as we program our heart during our times of fellowship is that the thought process of God, which we operate out of when we're operating from divine viewpoint, when we're operating from fellowship with God, that his thought process programs our heart, not our mind, but our heart, to carry out his will, and in doing so, it changes and programs our heart to do what God thinks and what God says instead of do what we think and what we say. The heart is. And the heart for us is, this is why we're taking a look at the heart, it's Greek word cardia, it's where you store your norms and standards for operation. The things that you are believing and depend upon moment in and moment out as a circumstance pops up, you have a normal operational protocol, a normal action that you will do if you don't choose otherwise when a situation arises. These would be considered impulsive actions if you're on the reflexive side, meaning you don't have to think about it, it's just there. When someone cuts you off in the freeway, you honk your horn, or other behaviors. The, that would be more of an impulsive, reflexive idea. There are other situations, like when you get an opportunity to lie so as to protect yourself, that you, it's not so much impulsive, we hope, and we prefer that it is a thought out, I can even lie, or I can tell the truth here, or the lie produces this result, where I may not be hindered or damaged, or my ego may be preserved, or I won't get into trouble on the child aspect from a parent. Or you can tell the truth and realize I'll let the chips fall where they may. 
we got two norms, two standards we can use, two operational protocols we can use, lie and tell the truth in that situation. Now, if you value lying, you will lie. If you value telling the truth, you will tell the truth. Which is why you can know something is right or wrong and still do the opposite. You can know lying is wrong and still depend upon a lie to use in the situation. And then at the end, you feel worthless and guilty and ashamed for you knew it was wrong. Your conscience has revealed it's wrong. Your heart is where you operate out of. Now, where do we get all of this? Matthew 15, 15. If you want to turn in your Bibles to that, that'll be where we'll focus on at least offering out of the Bible. We'll be using the projector to your right as well as the whiteboard to carry the idea across. Matthew 15, 15. Matthew 15. Verses 15 through 19 primarily. How do you store, store that stuff in your heart? We're going to get to that. Okay. How do we store our norms and standards in our heart? It depends on what we choose to depend on. So we'll, as we get into what I call the data evaluation principle, we will be identifying that process for you tonight. So that you understand it. I've got it something I need to change my heart over here, and I need to do it by going through this process. So Matthew 15, verses 15 through 20, is a conversation between Jesus and Peter. Jesus had just given a parable to the Pharisees who came to Jesus and asked them in verse 2 of chapter 15, why is it that your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Of all the things the Pharisees and scribes try to challenge Jesus with, doesn't this one seem a little bit picky? Why do your disciples not eat without washing their hands? Why don't they wash their hands before they eat? It's against, look what it says, it's against the, the tradition of the elders, transgressing the tradition of the elders. They don't even say it's part of the law. Why do they transgress the tradition of the elders in the American community? For they do not wash their hands in the eat. The elders' law. It's the elders. It's the tradition of man. And so these men, as Pharisees and scribes, have been taken captive by the tradition of men. What man verse? were told not to. That's in verse 2 of chapter 15. Oh. So we will be in 15:18. I'm trying to set the background for you. And Jesus goes in and he gives a parable in response about the mouth, about the heart, about the stomach. About what's eliminated and what comes out. And so, looking at verse 15 now, after the Pharisees go away, Peter comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, Explain the parable to us. And Jesus looks at him and says, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not know or do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Last week when we looked at this, we identified the mouth referred to actions, input and output. You take in through your senses that which feeds your brain information. And what comes out of your mouth, Jesus says in verse 18, comes from the heart. And so your output with the mouth in the Bible is symbolic of action. Your action, what comes out of your mouth is your action. What goes in is the, the data received from your senses. We'll outline all of this for you tonight. 
Now, there have been those who have asked and those who have challenged, well, here Jesus is merely talking about verbal statements or questions or challenges that come out from the tongue. And finally, he's talking about what is done by the tongue that would be considered transgression or sin, slander or lying. But Jesus in verse 19 continues on and dispels that notion. It says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So in verse 19, Jesus identifies it's not just talking about speech here. He's talking about every action that comes from man. And if you look at that list, all those actions are primarily wicked or evil. We looked at a few verses last week where we identified, such as in Proverbs, where in chapter 4, verse 23, we have the command to watch over your heart with diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. And we have in Proverbs also, I believe it is, I don't have the reference for you up there, we have in Proverbs also the, the verse that states to guard, no, guard your heart's the 423 one. The verse that identifies that your heart is deceitful above all things, who can trust it. So we have a heart that's deceitful, and we have a heart that is also the spring of life. Now, we identified when we looked at it that the heart refers to where you store your beliefs and standards. In the New American, or in the New Exodus Dictionary of the New Testament, they define cardia, the Greek word for heart, as with regard to meaning, the New Testament is dependent on Old Testament and Jewish, Jewish usage. Cardia is not regarded, as in the Greek understanding, as an organ in a physiological sense. It's not the blood pump. And it is the location of mental and spiritual feeling. The theological dictionary of the New Testament defines it in this way. In part, there are many pages of definitions that the theological dictionary of the New Testament gives out, but in part it says, Cardia comes to stand for the whole, the entire of the inner being of man, in contrast to an external side. What we find when we harmonize scripture out and look more in depth on the word studies is that the reference is to the place where you store your beliefs. Question. Is it safe to say that when you're out of fellowship with God, that that part of your brain, which is the heart, is following the flesh? Yes. So that's why it's evil. Yes. The, the evil aspect of the heart is because of the thought process we've developed and the things, norms and standards we've depended upon during our time out of fellowship with God. So from the moment of first breath, when we have that blank slate in our mind, where we're getting now information, and as innocent as we start, we're still unrighteous because we're missing the human spirit to govern that information. From that moment of first breath until the time that we accept Christ as Savior, that whole time, we're out of fellowship with God. And so during that whole stretch of our life, we are picking up the thought process of the world. We're picking up the norms and standards of the world system. Lying is A-OK -okay with the world. We just talked about politics. But even after you, That is a normal standard. Even after you accept Christ as a Christian, if you're out of fellowship, 
you're operating as if you were to say say it anyway. Yes. So if once you accept Christ, it doesn't mean from that point on right. you operate in fellowship. You're right. Fellowship is broken by sin. And so when you are in fellowship, then you're developing the counter or the uh, the idea which is opposed to world viewpoint. And that's the divine thought of God, which gives you pro processes and protocols to depend upon in your circumstances of this life to carry out God's will in that circumstance. So while you're in fellowship, yes, you're operating spiritually, you have to be doing righteous works by default. You or me. Okay. Probably both is what I'm getting at. But so, so while you never know sometimes, you never know. So while you're before you're saved, you don't have the possibility of being in fellowship with God. Christ has to take the penalty for your sins first. He's paid the penalty, but he has to have your sins imputed to him through your personal volition and dependence upon him. Once you do that, now you're in fellowship until you sin in your walk. Sin is still charged with Christ, but you're out of harmony with the Father. You're not in commonality with him. And so in your time out of fellowship, you continue to walk carnally as if you weren't saved to begin with. So you operate from those normal protocols you would have that aren't implemented yet, that you would have developed over time for your spiritual life. And you must then confess to get back in fellowship so as to learn divine viewpoint again and then depend upon that. Now, I want to be careful to point out that what you learn in fellowship doesn't go away just because you're not operating spiritually. What's that again? What you learn in fellowship, right. what you learn about lying is not right in any given situation, doesn't go away. So it's not that you have two minds and two different sets of norms and standards. Your norms and standards for a specific situation is programmed with a dependency you place. And we'll get to that when we get to the, the equations coming up. But the idea is not that when you're out of fellowship, you're operating off of a carnal normal standard. You still may be operating off of a principle that you learned when you were in fellowship in that area, but your spiritual operation is broken. So you can implement, even in carnality, the things that God teaches, but you can't understand them unless you're in fellowship to learn them. And the transition from an old normal standard to a new normal standard doesn't take place when you're out of fellowship. That all has to happen while you're in fellowship. But you can have an individual who, such as our example up here that we used last week where we said that uh, this individual has a norm as far as lying that says it's okay to lie for protection. If he gets into fellowship and realizes, no, lying to protect oneself is not the right protocol, and God says do not lie, and this is not to protect physically so much as this to protect the ego or the uh, way, the image of a person, or to not get into trouble, lying to protect oneself in those areas. When he gets into Bible class and is in fellowship and learns to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and let God take care of the pieces that fall behind, then he changes this, this normal standard out. He can go back out of fellowship, and if this is the normal standard that he's replaced with tell the truth, then his first, his first result, response will be to tell the truth. But he's also developed a wheel track. And a wheel track is that path that you normally take. And we need to get into some neurological terms in that a little bit more. What about there's reflective behavior, there's wheel tracks that are broader. So if you tell 
if you tell the lie, a lie 15 times, tell the truth two times, your brain has wired a pathway that's bigger and broader that naturally wants to go down the path towards lying. Right. When it sends electrical chemical processes and synapses. So you have to develop a ton of truth. And it's not this, it's not an equivalent in this nature, but the idea is if you tell the truth 15 times and you told a lie 15 times, now you've got a path that says this is equal. Now we've got to deliver you guys too, one way or the other. The narrow way is the truth. The, the narrow way has to develop to be the broad way. And that's where we have to flip flop from one parent to four. Question? Well, okay. Yesterday, no, two, uh, two or three days ago, when Mrs. Christian asked me, you know, uh, about the activity, and I said, well, it's really just a young guy that I don't know there, that, and I, and I thought about it, and I wasn't real clear about why he was being baptized or what the situation was, and, all. and I said, well, I said, I really don't know. I really don't know, so I can't say anything further. Okay, I wasn't lying, so, you know, I sort of knew, but I wasn't lying. What would you call that? Nothing. Well, I would call that wisdom. You do not know about which, that which you speak. Do not speak about that which you do not know. Yeah, yeah but, I, but I said I don't, I don't know. I said, I don't know, so, so you're calling call me smart, huh? Have a little bit of wisdom? I, I would think wisdom is a lot more accurate there than lying. So when did it start telling you stories that you weren't sure about, and it's gossip? Well, I didn't, well, she asked me, she asked me, you know, well, you know, what, well, why is he being baptized? And she said, there's a benefit. And I said, well, so you you gave out the information you knew and said, Well, I, I don't really know that much more, so yeah. I'm not gonna speak about the idea. Yeah, well I I knew some of it, but I didn't know the whole thing specifically, you know, and I didn't want to call it something that I didn't want it to be. Right. So this this Norman Standard stuff is gonna start being a little fuzzier until we get to Daily evaluation principles, which tells you how all this takes place. In Matthew 15, 15 to 18, identifies this for us. We uh, last week looked at a couple of scenarios here with stealing and lying, just to give you an idea of the Norman standard. Our example was that this individual has two Norman standards. That's all. He doesn't have any other sense here. He's got a, just an individual with two things that he knows. That stealing for provision is okay. That when he needs to have sustenance, such as bread on the table or food on the table, it's okay to steal. And that's what the normal standard we said was his. I'm not saying that that's okay. This is our hypothetical situation. We've got an individual who is believing these two things, that it's okay to steal for provision and it's okay to lie for protection. The example we gave is that he goes into a grocery store needing sustenance, needing food. He goes down the bread aisle, takes the loaf of bread, puts it into his jacket and hides it going out the door Waving the security guard as if everything is okay. And the security guard allows him to get a, a certain distance away and says, Excuse me, sir, can I see what's in your jacket? And the man turns and says, Oh, nothing's in my jacket. So he has carried out both the norms and standards in the given situations. He didn't have to lie in order to steal. But once he stole, he had to lie to keep that ruse up. And so when the situation came where he had to either lie or tell the truth, 
His norm that he depended upon was life or protection. If I tell him that it is bread and I have stolen it, that I am in trouble. His norm that was already in operation was when he needed provision to steal and take it. And so he's acted on his norms and standards. Now, the point of that example is, was to remind you that you have norms and standards of your store that are what I would call inactive. If you don't need, if circumstances, circumstance arises where you don't need to lie, then you're not going to be worried about lying. That norm is not going to be in operation. It's inactive. It's waiting on the wings ready to go out when a situation arises for lie. If you don't need to steal the provision, you may say it's still okay to steal the provision, but that's inactive. You're not worried about it because you're still feeding from the bread you used you stole last time. And so the idea here is we need to take these norms and standards that we've developed throughout our time out of fellowship and carnality, both pre-salvation and post-salvation, so that we have in them spiritual truth and spiritual norms and standards. When you sin, the world says, feel guilty, feel ashamed. The Bible says when you sin, realize it's charged to Christ. Confess it and move on. Don't sit there and beat yourself up. The world says you should feel guilty. You should recognize that it's wrong. Confess it. Praise God for the salvation you have it remains regardless of his actions. And praise him that he is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins. Not dwell on the fact that you were unfaithful and unrighteous. The world has a different set of norms and standards than God does. Our job as believers is to operate in fellowship so we change out the norms and standards we learn in carnality. Or those which are spiritually discerned, understood, and then implemented. That's the idea of the data evaluation principle. Let's take a look at the projector. And we will introduce the data evaluation principle, which is a law of operation. Just like the law of gravity, which is the law of science, this is operating in you right now. It will always operate in you until you are dead. It is a principle. It is not a guideline. It is always in operation. Therefore, as a principle, as a law of operation, it's not something that you can choose with your free will to implement or to not implement. It is part of you functioning. The only way you could stop this from functioning would be to commit suicide in some manner and that the Lord would also accept your act of suicide and not preserve your physical life. The only way for you to not operate this way is to be dead physically. So this is how God made us. This is how God made us. Yes, okay. ma'am. Now, we have used it in carnality. It has been in operation during our time in carnality, but we have to implement it spiritually allow it to work spiritually in fellowship with the Father. So this is a framework of our uh, humanity. It's part of how God created us. It's through the data evaluation principle that our heart, our storage place for our norms and standards, is programmed. So it may be a little difficult to read on the wall over there, but your basic equation is knowledge plus faith equals belief. There's a few definitions we need there. When you have a belief, it produces action. That is why you have a step-down arrow to the right, which is green. The green and the colors are coordinated because it's not until you use your choice, your volition, up here, 
that you actually can produce action. You cannot do anything without making a choice. And the choice is the equivalent of the plus sign in this equation. Knowledge plus faith. The plus sign is your choice. What you know, you have to depend upon. If you know that lying can protect you in a situation where you may be in trouble with the law, and you want to do that through your free will, you can. But if you know that lying to the police or to the law may put you in more hot water than you're already in, and it's not good to tell a lie, then you can depend upon that knowledge. And it will produce a different result. But you have to choose what you're depending on. Now, some of our dependencies that we have established norms and standards, some of our dependencies are so established that it is instantaneous reflexive. Someone cuts us off, we honk the horn. Didn't have to think about it. It just happened. Wife burns the sandwich, we get upset. The wife burns the sandwich, we get upset. The husband doesn't do what we want to do, we get upset. All of these things we've learned in carnality, and all of these things we've established so frequently and so much, we've used them so many times, that the, the wheel track, the pathway in your brain between this neuron and the next neuron that says carry out this action is so broad that the chemicals just fly right down it, and it happens before we even realize, oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't supposed to say that. I wasn't supposed to do that. Or I, was, I wasn't going to honk my horn the next time I got cut off. Pastor keeps talking about that. I'm not going to do it next time. It still happens. It's reflexive. Well, even if I burn a sandwich, I get upset. <laughs> so the, the basic equation is knowledge plus faith equals belief. Now, let's define some terms here. Knowledge is information. Information that you understand and comprehend. Whether it's academic or experiential, meaning that it's just information you've received through a classroom, book smarts, through reading, through study, or whether it's something you've learned through a circumstance of life. So knowledge is information that you understand and comprehend. Because you understand and comprehend it, you can't depend upon it. If you understand it or, can't, or don't comprehend it, you can't depend upon it. This is information that you understand and can depend upon. Faith comes from the Greek word pistis or pisteo, and it means to place your complete dependency upon something which produces an action for you. Here's the example. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you heard the gospel message, understood, and thus had knowledge and information about Jesus being the only one who could pay the penalty for your sins. You learned information that if you depend upon him to do so, then you won't have to do it yourself. That he will take that role for you. And so, because you understand that information, you then choose with your volition to depend upon Christ to take the penalty and his work to accomplish the payment of your debt instead of your own abilities. That, then, is a belief that you have, a dependency that you have upon Christ to take the penalty for your sins. Because you have that, that does produce action. God does the action primarily in that one. But your your life changes as a result of that. Now, for us, this comes down to even driving our cars. You get in the car, and you know that to start the car, you put the key in the ignition, not the CD player or the cassette tape deck. That doesn't start the car. 
And so because you know that, you put it in the ignition, and you know you can't just put it in the ignition, you have to turn the ignition, and you have to turn it a certain distance away from where it first was inserted. And once you turn it, you know that that should start the process of electrically to start all the mechanics inside the car so that it starts the combustion process and you can now put the car into gear and drive off. This is all information you know but didn't know you knew. Because it's such a subtle thing for us. Now if you don't depend upon that knowledge, then you're not going to start your car. If you get bad knowledge, like if your parent who taught you to drive says, okay, in order to start the car, put the key into the stereo or the 8-track, am I on the right time frame here? 8-track in the car when you learn? Before that? They I'm trying to be relevant here. They okay, didn't have 8-tracks when I was... <laughs> Alright, so... Not in probably in CD Did you have radios? I think they had yes, a radio. Yes. Okay, so... Yes. But there were no 8-tracks in, in a car. No A-tracks in the car yet. Okay, so we're going before that. All right. So if, you're, if your parent taught you, if your father taught you when you were learning to drive a vehicle, to put the key into the, glove the, the radio. Or the key to the gl glove compartment. That it did. Okay, the key to the glove compartment. <laughs> I was going to say a seatbelt, but I'm not sure those were around no, either. Okay. No. <laughs> if your father who taught you to drive taught you to put the key in the lock for the glove compartment and turn that to start the car, you wouldn't get very good results to start the car. And he would probably be chuckling. But let's say he wasn't with you in the vehicle. And let's say all of a sudden cell phones were around. And you are learning to drive the first time and he's out of town and says, hey, I know you gotta go somewhere. Here's how you start the car. Put the, put the key in the, the lock for the glove box and turn it. And you go, okay, Dad, I love you. Goodbye. And hang out the cell phone that came from the future. And you get in the car and you put that key in the glove box lock and you turn it. What are you expecting is going to happen? The car would start because you trust the source. But if the source gives you bad information, it doesn't produce the work that you expected it to produce. This is what James means when he says faith without works is dead. If you depend upon Muhammad, to pay the penalty for your sins, or if you depend upon the principles of Buddhism to bring you into the afterlife, it cannot do the work necessary to produce the expectation that you expected it to produce. It does not accomplish that work. It's like putting the key in the lock for the glove compartment, or for those in the 21st century, the stereo CD deck. It will not work. So you have information which is good information, true, or worthless information, it's false. And our whole time as we live our life in carnality, pre-salvation and post-salvation, we get information that's false. We may get the truth like the lights are on in this building. You can get that in fellowship process. But if you're looking for behavioral information, how is it that I cope with my emotional losses? Today's society, here, take this pill. <coughs> this will help you cope. Okay, here's, here's one. This one's a depress antidepressant, so it'll make you really happy, but here's another one that depresses you a little bit to bring you down to normal, normal levels. This is how psychology, this is all psychiatry, really, 
is managing our human people. That knowledge, you depend upon that knowledge, it will produce a worthless work or no work at all for you. You are operating in fellowship. Everything you receive from the Holy Spirit is divine fruit. You depend upon that every single time. It will produce the expected work that you are depending upon to produce. And so when you change out the norms of lying, it's okay to protect myself from trouble with the law, to telling the truth and letting God take care of me instead of me taking care of myself. You swap that out. You depend upon it through faith. It produces the action when the officer says, were you speaking? You go, yes, sir, I was. And he says, well, I could write your ticket this time or I could let you off. And he may still write your ticket. But the idea is that by doing what God holds your divine truth to, to do and depend upon, you allow it to go into the hands of God the Father rather than your own hands. And you're following His will, not your own. Now, with this process, in between the knowledge and the plus sign, you've got an orange bracket with what I call filtration systems. I realize it's a little small now, but that for you. You have five primary, primary ones. Your conscience is a filtration system. This is your awareness of what's right and what's wrong morally. Now, the difference between morals and ethics, ethics is what is, is absolutely right and absolutely wrong. And then for us, in our Christian mindset, it's what God says is right and what God says is wrong. Now, that applies for those who aren't Christians as well. They just don't understand that. So ethics is what is in reality is right or wrong. Morals is what you personally view as right or wrong. And those change. Ethics don't. They do not change. Ethics do not change. So your conscience is your awareness of what is right or wrong morally. Now, for us as believers, while we operate in fellowship, our conscience is programmed towards the morality of God, the ethics of God. Where we used to think morally lying is okay. Everyone lies. must be okay. Even our presidents do it. I'm not actually talking about our current administration on this one. Going back to the one that stood trial and asked what is the definition of is? How do you define the word is? Or no, I do not have relations, relations with that woman. We have all sorts of leaders that lie, but the reality is, if we're not honest with ourselves, we're also lying. And so as we view that it's okay to lie morally, it's still ethically wrong to lie. But morally, we say, no, it's okay in certain situations. As that is <clears throat> typical, normal, natural humans, carnal humans. And there's people that call white lies, they call white lies. White or black, they're all lies. <laughs> if you give an adjective to a lie, it's still a lie. <laughs> Just let it lay. Now, the, the conscience is where you store. What is that one? Conscience. Your conscience is where you store your awareness of what's right or wrong. So it is a storage place. But it is also programmable. It's programmable based upon some of these other filters. So your worldview is another filtration system. Your worldview is how you view the world, simply put. Now, we have what we would consider a Christian worldview. 
But we don't develop a Christian worldview if we don't have an understanding of what the Bible says about the world. And thus understand what God says about the world. So if we want to develop a Christian worldview, we go to the Bible. The Bible says homosexuality is a sin, an abomination. The Bible says that lying is wrong. The Bible says that stealing is wrong. The Bible says to allow God to provide for you and to submit yourself to Him, not do what you want. And we develop that worldview through recognition of what God's Word says. So your worldview filters the information. If I have someone that says, it's okay for me to be in a homosexual relationship because, well, this is just how I am. My filtration system goes blinking all over the place. In my conscience, my word is what's right and wrong according to Scripture. In my worldview, because Christian worldview identifies homosexuality as a sin. And that God doesn't make us in sin. But the sin is a result of a fallen nature. That then needs to be dealt with through the cross first. And through confession second. And so you look at that sort of knowledge or information and you filter it out. And you go, hey, this is faulty knowledge. This is bad information. I understand what he's saying, but it's wrong. Emotion. Could you, uh, go ahead. He's saying it's a filter. Uh, the conscience is a filter. When you were talking about particularly homosexuality, you said example. that filters it out. But even before it gets there, I mean, as a Christian, would you already know it's wrong? Well, in your, in your worldview and your conscience, if you read the Bible and it says homosexuality is an abomination, you know the gist is it's wrong. It's sin. I mean, and so that's what, you're, that's what you're using. When that knowledge, when that statement comes across in your mind, when you hear it and it goes into your parietal lobe and goes spread across your frontal lobe, right? right? We'll, we'll show you the diagram in just a minute. Well, you said it's on this side. It, not the heart's on this side. The left side is where this whole processing okay. problem, right. program takes place. What did you say about the heart is on the left side? On the right side. Right oh. frontal lobe. Well, I saw you. I saw. I saw you go this way, and I thought you said left. So, so for me, this is the right frontal lobe. For you, it's my left frontal lobe. The way you're facing oriented. This is the right. Yes, you're right. For for your orientation, this is right. Right side for you. Right side for me. But as I'm looking at you, that's the left of you. Yeah. So you gotta flip that yeah. distinction around. Right. So what you're saying is the conscience comes into play right off the bat. It never gets past the conscience. Once the information comes in, right, your filtration system start filtering. Okay. This is before you make a decision about it. Your conscience comes in and says, no, Bible says that's wrong, that's sin. Okay, conscience flies that information as bad or untrue. Your worldview says, no, God doesn't make people that way. Right. That's a result of fallen nature and lust patterns towards sensuality primarily. Sometimes towards But it doesn't people. get that far, does it? It goes through all of these. Oh, really? Yep. You may get down here to your, your personality, which should say mentality. Change that out of your conscience out. Toss personality out and write mentality down. Mentality is that frame of mentality that you are in in that moment. Are you flustered? Are you excited about something? Uh, is there something really troubling you in the back of your head that you're trying to figure out? That's your mentality. So personality, cross that off and write mentality. I couldn't remember whether it was personality or mentality, and I, in my head I kind of see them almost as the same, but they're not. 
person not affected by your mentality. So mentality is this one. Now the emotion, this is the one that we see in modern day Christianity primarily. We, and we, by we I mean corporate American Christianity, predominantly see spiritual life based under an emotional lens. What I mean by that is we feel closer to God when we have loud music singing amazing songs that are repetitive with amazing singers and vocals that sound great. And we see people weeping and we see people excited and jumping up and down and all these things influence us in our mentality through our emotions. And we have a tendency, again, we corporate America, not necessarily white here, we have a tendency as humans to say, wow, the Holy Spirit's in this place, or God's presence is here. <coughs> now, if you've read the Bible, the Holy Spirit dwells every believer, whether they're having a good time singing or worshiping or not. If you've read the Bible, God is omnipresent. <coughs> He's always here. I don't know if David did really sang and danced. And David did all sorts of things that I wouldn't do or that I probably would do had the Lord not gotten a hold of me in different times. He was a man after God's own He was a man after God's own heart. He wanted to know the standards of God and now that starts to make sense to us. When I understood that whole this concept of the heart and that verse came across me, I don't know if the Holy Spirit brought it across or if I just got into a study somewhere and it flagged through my head and remembered it. Because my question was, how can David be a man after God's own heart when he continually is doing this? He murders a guy so that, to cover up something he's done with the guy's wife. Right. How can he be a man after God's own heart? Well, because after he can, after he repented in his mind and confessed, he said, "I don't want what I believe. I don't want what you believe, God." And now it makes sense. I don't want my normal standards. I want your normal standards. What do you say? How do we go through this? That's why he's a man after God's own heart. Now, emotions. This one. Okay. Off the soapbox about the spiritualization emotions and making emotions this very spiritual thing in Christian America, America, American Christianity. I watched a video today that I both wish, wish I hadn't watched and I'm grateful that I have. It was a video of a disgruntled, what I'm going to call insane woman. And by insane, I mean not understanding reality. Who was angry at her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, for breaking up with her. Prepare your emotions for this. And she took their child and videoed and sent video to her ex-boyfriend of her choking him on multiple occasions. And you can just feel it inside of her. And she never went past that line to kill him. She passed the line away a long time ago. But there were multiple times where she recorded, one time of which the boy was asleep, and he woke up with her hand around his throat. And he's gasping for air I went on to read the comments on that video, and I saw words I haven't heard since high school. 
And I understood the anger. And the way that that woman was being attacked for the excusesness of what she was doing. Is that a true story? That is a true story. But what we don't realize is our emotions. Regardless of how heinous that is, it does not give us the foundation to be heinous towards another. And when you look at the comments that that lady was receiving, you take out the language that was being used, the name she was being called, all of it was operating from this area of emotion, of anger, and I, frankly, I'm kind of grateful that America still has this kind of emotion. But it was all operating the same way she was operating towards that child. Angry with her ex-boyfriend, and so she's tearing down on them. Now there's a little bit of difference between, and I'm not even going anywhere near to say this is right communication in people's comments, because there's nothing right about what they were saying they were doing to her, and the names they were calling her. So there's a right communication in, in emotional and we've got to be careful to distinguish between the two. Emotion causes people to do and say things. In fact, one of the comments said, I don't normally talk like this, but here we go. Colon, three paragraphs. Words that I would have to look up in the dictionary what they meant, but I know better than to do so. Emotion filters information. This, in this situation, the video was feeding these people information their emotions rose up, and they were going to do something about it. And they perceived the situation through emotion and what they were going to do from their emotions. Emotion is a filtration system. It appreciates, gives value to what is going on in your circumstance. It is designed to be a responder around to our circumstances, not to be a leader or initiator. And so while I watched the video, and I am talking to God about how on earth can this woman be doing this to this innocent little child. She wasn't going to respond to his behavior in the video. The boy was asleep in one of the videos. Huh? That's the thing. With my, my taking care of my grandchild so much that sometimes I think, you know, these young parents that I, you're ready to shake the child. Some hurdle. <laughs> But, I mean, the child was, but when that child is, is sitting peacefully on your lap, then those feelings are not there. No, because so, you're appreciating the, the cuddliness. Yes. Now that was a term in our study, cuddliness. Uh -huh. You're appreciating what's going on. And so, so you're loving it all the time. But that wasn't the case in the video. No. no. That was revenge against the Boyfriend. Yes, and the child was not. Right. He was an innocent party. And yeah. As far as I could tell, either way, that should never take place. So the emotion, whether they're good or bad, they're never designed to be leaders. All they're designed to do is be responders to what's going on around us. We're not supposed to operate from emotions. By the way, the emotions are in the kidneys, according to Scripture. When you see the word kidneys in Scripture, it's referring to the emotions. Really? Yes. Just like heart is referring to your arms and standards, mouth, actions, and input, feet where you walk. If you're in, if you're in fellowship, your emotions would be different than if you weren't. They will be operating properly as responders, yes. Why do you understand it? Because your emotions would be 
It's not that they're in McKinney, literally. Yeah. McKinney is symbolic of emotion. Just like the heart is symbolic of the right front lower where your nose stands from. It's a symbolism that the Hebrews used to identify that note, that idea. All of these things, if you're not in fellowship, are going by worldview. Yes, carnal views. But if you're in fellowship, then you're these are except for one. And that's your lust pattern. Your what? Your lust pattern. If you remember back to chapter two, you're in, if you're in fellowship, your lust pattern is not operating actively. Right? It it may be it, it may get peaked through temptation, but you're not following your lust pattern. Right. So your lust pattern while you're in fellowship isn't so much a factor in the filtration system, but carnally it very much is. And the lust pattern, if you remember from chapter two of First John, we went through verses fifteen through I believe seventeen or eighteen. We said that the, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, are, excuse me, from the world and not from God. And we identify that there are three dominant lust patterns for humans. Lust is a desire to consume, by the way. The Greek word epithumios means a desire to consume something. The thing is either in the area of ego, the area of material or physical object, or in the area of satisfying your senses. So you've got pride through ego. You've got materialism through valuing material objects more so than you ought to and desiring to consume them. You have sensuality, which is anything that satisfies the senses. Sensuality does not equate to sexuality, although that's how our world typically refers to it. Anything that's desired that is satisfying to the senses, eating is a sensualist idea. You continue to eat. Gluttony, I guess, is more the right word. Now, there are other reasons for gluttony anyway. That's not the focus. Your lust pattern plays a role in what you filter out. Your information gets filtered through your lust pattern as well. Alright? Um, we will take a break at this point and end because we're coming up to 7.20 and so we've, we've gotten through a lot of these things already. Let me just real quickly finalize this by the mouth because I didn't touch on it. And again, we're color-coded on our chart here. So input is data that you receive from your senses. Okay? Whatever you receive through your senses is data. The difference between data and information is data is information that's not yet understood. It's pure and raw in form. It has to then be correlated with what you already know and the other ideas and concepts you have that you've already learned to say, okay, that color on the wall is more of a cream eggshell color than it is a black color. If you don't know what cream or eggshell is, then you're going to go, okay, that color is more of a white than a black. And so the information you already know, the data comes in and gets correlated with that information. And if you don't have a, something that correlates, then you have to learn information to understand that. You have to go to something that you can't understand, like a dictionary for a word you don't know. And so data is pure and raw. Stuff you are bringing in through observation, through the senses, that you then have to understand. And until you understand it, it's still data. Now, you may be able to comprehend it. You may not, depending on the information and the vault of ideas you have already in your head. But until you understand what it is, it's just data. When you understand what it is, it becomes information, which is knowledge. So the input in red is data received from your senses that once you understand it and are able to file what it is in your head, 
it becomes knowledge. Now you can do something with it. Until then, it's just data. Once you deal with it, you choose to depend upon it, it produces a belief which results in an action. The belief is stored in your heart. The heart sends that belief to your output, which goes out through the mouth. Now again, we're not talking literal symbols here, or what God or Jesus is talking about. The mouth takes in sensory perception, it sends out the belief through the form of action. What you do comes out of your mouth. Your output, your actions, come from the heart, Jesus said. So it starts with information going into knowledge, dependence upon it through personal volition, belief stored in your heart, a belief gets transferred from your heart to your mouth where it implements that belief into action. And that is the daily evaluation principle. The mouth is the most uh, logical one up there because uh, <laughs> out comes the words that, that you're feeling and things. Yes, and when you look at data, your brain is being fed data. Every sense that you have is going on. It's feeding your brain data. Data, uh, even right now, spatially, to know where you are in this room, your brain is receiving data. And so you may not be thinking, the wall's over there, the wall's over there, the wall's over there, the ceiling's here, and I'm right here, and I'm about 20 feet from this wall, and that wall, whatnot. But your brain is constantly running this information. So as you walk around, you're not scared of running into the wall because you know where it is. Because your, your data's coming in through what Jesus is identifying in your mouth. Instead, it's not what comes into you that defiles you. What comes out of your mouth, your actions, defile you because they come from the heart. Now we can start to understand the heart possesses wisdom. Now we can understand guard your heart above all else. For it is the wellspring of life. And from it flows life. So it's not looking in your Aspects of it may still be. But if you're in fellowship, those wicked aspects cannot operate. They can be challenged. And you can you can use a wicked Norman standard and go out of fellowship. Well, because of lust pattern? Through the lust pattern, yes. The lust pattern is what influenced that to say, I know that's wrong. Uh, but I want it and go for it. But that's a combination of your lust, your desire to consume that thing with your volition, your intended purpose. Once you let that go, then you're back out of fellowship. Yes, sir. Can we get a copy of that? Yes, I'll get you a copy of that. Any other questions on this briefly? It is not something that I would assume you've heard before, parts of it perhaps. I actually have. But it's something that if you look at James 1, 13 to 16, it's an operation there. The whole temptation process runs this principle. Satan comes and uses this every day to tempt us. Seeing world view up there, I thought you were going to say it changes and now the, well maybe not the world view, but the United States view is that it's okay for gay marriage and this is okay and now how it has changed from when I was a child to things that would never think of doing and now right. everything so that's what I thought world view was going to be it's not the world's view it's your view of the world uh -huh. how you view the world and today teenagers view social responsibility such as I need to go to work take care of what I have in front of me my responsibilities 
And then once I've got those things handled, be able and willing as the Lord leads me to direct some resources to others who cannot take care of those things. That's all changed from when you guys were growing up to teenagers today where, well, why shouldn't we have free college? Why shouldn't yeah. the people who make billions of dollars pay for my college? I don't have the money. Exactly. Difference in worldviews. A lot of other things. Too, but it's shaped by the world if we're not guarding against it. 